Hey y'all, welcome back to Hummus Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson. On today's episode, we will be recapping all of the Week 10 games from this past Saturday in college football. Uh, pretty interesting weekend. Not too many big upsets, but a lot of very close calls for a lot of the top teams. Um, we will be doing our Week 11 preview on a separate episode that will come out in a couple of days on late Wednesday night, Thursday morning. Jacob Borland is going to come back on the pod, and we're going to do another Best Bets episode. The slate is really good this upcoming Saturday. That's really the case every Saturday until the season's over. There's only three left. It really flew by, but um, we're going to do another round of the Best Bets because we need some redemption from last time, so we're going to get it much better this, this go-around. We're looking into plays right now, so we'll do all of the previewing in a couple of days. This is just the recap and everything. Uh, also, in between now and when the next episode comes out, College Hoops is starting. Just wanted to kind of touch on that for a second. I'm not going to dive into college basketball or anything too much, although you can probably expect a off-season, maybe March Madness preview episode or something like that because I love prepping for the tournament. But uh, there's a good doubleheader of kind of the, you know, Blue Bloods on ESPN. Kansas plays Michigan State and Kentucky plays Duke on Tuesday night. So I'm looking forward to that. I'll have it playing along with the Maction on my TVs. So hope everybody enjoys the start to the college basketball season and the next three weeks of the football season. So we'll get started right now. Thomas Jackson, beautiful podcast from Denver. So, yet again, same old, same old for the dogs. Georgia rolls Missouri 43-6. to This was definitely not the biggest game of the day, but I mention it because the next top two through six teams, we talked about how that was just kind of a jumbled mixed bag where you could really just draw teams out of a hat and argue just about any order for all of those teams ranked two through six in the most recent college football playoff. I'm talking about Alabama, Michigan State, Oregon, Ohio State, and Cincinnati, of course. But um, all of those teams had close games. Michigan State is the only one who didn't get out of the weekend with a win in that group. Michigan State lost to Purdue 40-29. to This was a really weird line with Michigan State only being favored by three, even though Purdue was unranked and, you know, I mean, on paper – Really shouldn't have had any business being in that close of a game with Michigan State. It wasn't even close. We just thought it would be the other other uh, outcome. <laughs> but um, I thankfully stayed away from that one, even though I wanted to touch Michigan State. It just looks a little too weird. So that was a good no play. Uh, no one thought Purdue could do this twice in one year. Of course, they already upset number two Iowa earlier in the season, but their crazy upset bug strikes again. It is truly one of the weirdest, most head-scratching programs in the country because, well, they play Ohio State next, but they'll probably come out and lose to, you know, Illinois or Rutgers or whoever if they haven't already played those to end off the season. So they are truly the giant killers with uh, two top three victories so far this year as an unranked team. Uh, We'll go through the rest of the top six. Alabama really struggled with LSU. This one, I mean, Alabama was just dying to lose this game. It looked kind of like a vintage Alabama kicking performance, probably the worst we've seen from Will Reichard yet. Uh, he doinked a field goal early in the game, missed a PAT, 
uh, our special teams unit gave up a fake t- punt on the first LSU drive that led to a touchdown. The tons of penalties, I don't have the exact number, but Alabama had, I mean, I think like close to 10 in the first half. The team had a total of six rushing yards when you take into account Bryce Young's sacks against an LSU defensive line who has been pushed around and dominated all year. Alabama's center did get hurt in the first quarter and did not return, so that, um, you know, I guess has some to do with it, but... Considering that we've seen teams like Florida and UCLA and, you know, even State get a way better push on this LSU offensive line, that was very concerning to see Alabama just not be able to run the ball at all. A lot of people upset with Bill O'Brien yet again after this game. Uh, The I-formation at the end of the ball game when Alabama had the chance to get a first down and just run the rest of the clock off. They could have, you know, tried to do one play action, one pass play, but instead O'Brien decided to line up in the I formation, run it up the gut three times in a row and give LSU the ball back with like a minute left. Thankfully, LSU didn't score, but with this being a one-score ball game and a six-point ball game at that, it was extremely nerve-wracking watching that down the stretch. I wish he wouldn't have gotten so conservative with it. It reminded me a lot of the mind-boggling stretch at A&M where Alabama had it first and goal on the two-yard line and decided to pass three times. So uh, this guy, you know, I don't know. Just situationally, there's been a lot of head-scratching things like that this year, and I really hated how conservative he was when – We've got one of the best quarterbacks and some great playmakers, you know, in the whole country. I think we should just trust them for one play to get the first down. And if shit hits the fan, Bryce can always run it. Um, But anyway, LSU, I mean, I'm thankful that they didn't have all of their players. They had several guys of their most, you know, highly touted uh, players that are hurt or kind of opted out when all this Coach O stuff has been going haywire. So thankfully they didn't have all their players because I doubt Bama would have won if if they had their full squad. So it was just a really, really bad performance against a team that I was expecting to roll, especially after a bye week. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, Bama gets a break next week with New Mexico State, but it's going to be uh, a tough finish to the season after that. Oregon squeaked by Washington, 26-16. Washington also with some super conservative play calling, which especially as an underdog at home late in the game when it's a one-score ball game, you have the chance to make things happen. You just never really want to see that. Washington's coach, uh, there was like a late hit, kind of a scruffle on the sidelines, and their coach absolutely freaked out and ended up getting suspended for this next upcoming matchup of theirs against Arizona State, I believe it is. Uh, Oregon continues to play kind of up or down to their competition. Uh, We know this is a very talented squad. They took it to Ohio State earlier in the season, but they also have a lot of games when they're playing way lesser competition, way, you know, teams that are far less talented than them. And it'll almost always be a closed game. You saw it with Cal. You saw it with Arizona, of all people. You saw it when they got beat by Stanford. So... Oregon's going to have to pick it up if they want to get serious because this, you know, weird Jekyll and Hyde thing that they do is is not sustainable for the long run. And they still have three weeks to go before they can get to the postseason and have a good chance at uh, making the playoff. 
Ohio State, more con- more conservative play calling on Nebraska's part with Scott Frost, which at this point you'd think he would just say, F it, let's just, you know, all dogs, go, go get them. And, uh, but he did not. Nebraska did get kind of screwed by a late pass interference call that could have changed the game, but they still had a lot of opportunities in Ohio State territory in the second half without converting those opportunities into very many punts, points. Sorry, there were several too many punts. Uh, it's, it's just mind boggling how this can keep happening in Nebraska week after week after week. I don't know how many times this can possibly happen to one team and one coach, but I imagine their fans have to just be pulling their hair out at this point with all of these close games that they, you know, probably should have won or at least taken some more aggressive shots given that you don't have anything to lose. Um, you know, Ohio State, they had a tough game against Penn State last week where they also didn't look too great, but this was kind of a natural letdown spot early game in Lincoln. And uh, so I'm not too worried about them. I think I think that Ohio State's going to be okay. But, you know, Nebraska's clearly not as bad as we all thought they were after week zero and some of those, you know, early stinkers that they laid. But good Lord, I am almost starting to feel for this for this program having all these close calls. Lastly, Cincinnati, they beat Tulsa 28 to 20. Um, this was probably the closest of all these teams to losing. This was close to being my best bet of the week. And thankfully I went another direction with it because it was Cincinnati minus like 22 and a half. I believe Cincinnati's had a couple really close calls the past couple weeks before this game. So I expected them to come out after they got, you know, I mean, I think it's a fair ranking, especially now number six by the playoff committee, but you have to imagine that they felt kind of shafted by it. Um, I thought that that would be kind of light a fire under their ass, you know, get them riled up and everything, ready to go. Tulsa's only won three games this whole year, so Cincinnati's clearly the better team. Um, but uh, I don't know what's happened with them. Tulsa had the ball on the five-yard line with, with a chance to score, get a two-point conversion, and tie the ball game up with a minute left. Cincinnati stopped them on fourth down, got the ball back inside the five. Cincinnati fumbled it on a QB sneak and gave it right back to Tulsa with less than a minute to go. Then Tulsa fumbled it on like the one inch line as the running back was trying to cross the plane, turned it over, touched back to the Bearcats, and that was a wrap. Uh, you know, this is not what Cincinnati, I mean, they got the win, but this is not what they needed after getting that number six, uh, ranking by the playoff committee. They clearly don't really respect their strength of schedule and fair enough. If you ask me, they need to be blowing teams out. And if, you know, it's still not too late because they've got a couple good teams left on their schedule in SMU and Houston, one of which I believe they'll see twice having to play them again in the American, uh, championship game. But, um, I mean, they got to start winning big and doing that now because, you know, the number of Saturdays are running out and they're not going to get in over all the big dogs beating a three-win team by eight every week. So Cincinnati needs to turn it on. They also had game day there so that, you know, if anything, brought some more eyes to them. So that, that does not help their case at all. Uh, Texas A&M beat Auburn 20-3. to Bo Nix was kind of back to his bullshit, <laughs> just couldn't get anything going at all. He passed the ball 41 times and only had 153 yards to show for that. Uh, Auburn could never get the running game going either. They only had 73 team rushing yards, which, you know, that's 
really been their rock all year. Even when Bo hasn't played well, they've been able to lean on Tank and Shivers. So it was a pretty dominant performance by the A&M defense. Calzada actually got hurt in the second half when the game was still pretty close, and it looked like he might not return. Their third-string quarterback had to come in because Haynes King, I guess, is still banged up back from week two. But Calzada was able to return and uh, finish the ball game out for the Ags. A&M is still undefeated since it's two-game skid to Arkansas and Mississippi State back in September. If they went out and Alabama were to lose to either Arkansas or Auburn, then A&M would be the West champion and play Georgia in the SEC championship. So they have to do a little bit of score war watching and take care of their own business, but they're still not totally dead, which, you know, after the first month of the season is pretty incredible. So they have probably their, their hardest matchup for the rest of the year. They travel to Oxford for a night game this upcoming Saturday. It's going to be game day. It's going to be an awesome game. Um, so if they can get past the Rebels, then, you know, the odds are in their favor to, to win out. And at this point, you know, I'm sure they're feeling at least a tiny little bit of optimism, given how bad Bama looked last week. So some kind of quick hitters. We'll jump around to different conferences, touch on a couple of the other divisional conference races around the country in the SEC. Tennessee got a huge upset win over Kentucky. That was in Kentucky, uh, 48-45. I mean, they've really, Tennessee's really gotten a lot of momentum the second half of the season. They played really well after the first few weeks. They didn't look very good at all. They faced Georgia next, so who knows? That might, you know, be a ugly taste of reality when they play the dogs, but Tennessee's got to be feeling good after giving Bama a good shot and then upsetting their other rival in Kentucky on the road. Uh, Ole Miss beat Liberty 27-14. to This was, of course, Hugh Freeze's return to Oxford. Uh, Ole Miss, I think they were up 24-0, 27-0 at half, and then Liberty scored a couple and held them in the second half, but it wasn't wasn't enough, too little, too late. Arkansas upset number, well, this, okay, another game. State was ranked, Arkansas was not, but Arkansas was like a five-point favorite. So they didn't upset them, but they beat an unranked, or they beat a ranked team as an unranked team. My God. 31-28 in Starkville. The Hogs got a much-needed victory after they've been on a pretty bad skid themselves ever since that Georgia beat down. South Carolina, the most shocking score of the day, beat Florida 40-17. to South Carolina barely beat Vandy this year, and Florida almost beat Alabama. So, like, you know, this was just pretty shocking. Florida just fired their defensive coordinator, Todd Grantham, which is not terribly surprising to anybody who's kept an eye on the Gators this year. Their defense has been god-awful. And their offensive line coach is is also out as of today. Um, More on Mullen and his very quickly warming hot seat uh, coming up in that segment towards the end of the pod. The ACC... Uh, really only one thing to touch on here. Wake Forest was really their only hope to get into the playoff this year. It was a long shot, even with Wake Forest being undefeated, because the committee put them at number nine last week. They just don't have many victories, although they have looked really good this year. But UNC upset them in Chapel Hill, 58-55, to Wake's first loss of the season. <clears throat> this was another 
unranked team that was favored over a ranked team. So I uh, I stayed away from that one, even though I wanted to take Wake. They were plus two and a half, so I'm glad I didn't have to suffer that half-point loss. North Carolina seems to be kind of, you know, coming back into form, playing more like we thought they would at the beginning of the season for the whole season. Quite a few teams like that that I was big on early on that uh, just had a horrible start to the season but are coming back on now. UNC in addition to like Utah and Iowa State. So expect to hear a little bit more about them the past few or the next few weeks as I've got some futures that are trying to save their butts at the very last minute. But uh, yeah, the ACC is basically done now. There's no chance they get anybody. The next highest ranked team after Wake Forest was NC State at 19 and then Pitt at 25, I believe. Um, so ACC is done. That's not surprising to anybody. I don't think anyone really expected Wake to make it the rest of the way without suffering a loss. But it would have been fun to see them make it all the way and put the committee in a kind of bad position. But still... A lot of credit to Wake. I'm excited to watch them for the rest of the year. They've still got ACC title hopes on the line, obviously. So I'll be pulling for the Demon Deeks. Having it's got I me. Mean, it's got to be their best season in program history, unless there's something from like the 20s that I don't know about. But UNC, happy for them to be kind of getting on track finally. But uh, also, they rushed the field after this game. Like given the expectations that they had going into the season, and that it's Wake Forest, like. You know, I'm sure they view them as a little brother in the state. Like, come on now. <laughs> come on, man. You got to be kidding me. Uh, Big 12. <clears throat> this is shaping up to be a pretty fascinating uh, conference battle for the two top spots to get to the uh, Big 12 championship game at the end of the season. So for those who don't know, so all the Power 5 conferences except for the Big 12, have two divisions. Like the SEC has the West with Alabama, Auburn, LSU, all those teams, and they have the East, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, etc. And then the winner of each division plays each other in the conference championship game. So the ACC, Big 10, and Pac-12 are also also have that same format. The Big 12 is the only one that just has all teams. There's no divisions. They just have, you know, top to bottom. All 12 teams will, you know, stack up against each other, which I kind of like, honestly. It has some differences in the scheduling, but that way, you know, there have been years where, you know, the two best teams in the SEC are, say, Alabama and Auburn or Alabama and LSU that are both in the same division. So that prevents one of those teams from playing in the SEC championship game. And this kind of solves that problem. So it truly is the two teams with the best record that go and meet up meet up in the Big 12 championship game in Dallas every December, which I think is a cool format. And as conferences expand, I think we'll be seeing more of that type of thing because it's easier to play more of your conference more often. But that's big, big, long conversation for another day. Um, anyway, Oklahoma State beat West Virginia. Well, let me hit on the the standings real quick. So the top four is really what's getting interesting here. And all that really matters is the conference record, not so much your overall. So that's mostly what we, what we will be focusing on here. So Oklahoma is in the lead at 6-0. and They're still undefeated overall. Oklahoma State is one game back at 5-1. and 
Baylor and Iowa State are both two games back of Oklahoma, but only one game back of Oklahoma State for that second spot to get into the game at a 4-2 and two conference record. So Oklahoma has played none of these teams. They play, but they have three games left on their schedule, and it's all this top three. So they play, let's see, it's Baylor this Saturday, Iowa State the following Saturday, and then Oklahoma State on the Thanksgiving rivalry weekend. So the Sooners are finally about to meet their match. We've been saying all year how bad they've just been trying to lose, and they've just been playing really crappy, far inferior competition. So they're about to finally get a test of what they're made of. They had a bye week this week, so you know they're probably kind of clinching their asses, getting ready for this next stretch because it's going to be brutal, but really fun for the rest of us to watch. As far as these other three teams go, Oklahoma State, Baylor, Iowa State, they have a, a round-robin tiebreaker on who beat who. So Oklahoma State has the tiebreaker over Baylor. Baylor has the tiebreaker over Iowa State. And Iowa State has the tiebreaker over Oklahoma State. So it really is like a love triangle with these other three. But Oklahoma State, of course, has the 5-1 and one record, which puts them over Baylor and Iowa State for now. So... All of these teams have the chance to get themselves in this top two. There is a crazy scenario where it one of the top two teams does not include Oklahoma, um, but that you know we'll just have to see if they can rise to the occasion. So this Saturday, uh, Oklahoma State beat West Virginia, so they improve their standing. Iowa State beat Texas, so they improve their standing. But t- uh, TCU upset Baylor, thirty to twenty eight. So Baylor was in that one loss category with the, let's see, no, so they were, their record was five and one in conference, but Oklahoma State had the tiebreaker over them. So they're still, it's still not too late. Who knows what's going to happen, but this big 12 little Oklahoma round robin and all the different tiebreakers is going to be really fun to watch in the Pac-12. Utah beat Stanford 52-7. to That was on Friday night. Stanford's kind of notorious for having really empty stadiums. And this one, I saw some pictures from the fourth quarter of this game. And it was, I mean, it looked like there wasn't even a game happening if you didn't look on the field. I've never seen so few people in a Power 5 stadium in my life outside of maybe a couple Duke or Vandy games. Arizona State beat USC 31-16. to Sun Devils get a much-needed win. Oregon... We talked about them already. They just barely squeaked by Washington. So Oregon has a one-game lead in the north over Washington State, and Utah has a one-game lead um, over Arizona State in the south. Those two play each other on November 20th, and it's looking like we might get another game between those two two weeks after their matchup in the Pac-12 title game. So Washington State actually travels to Eugene this Saturday where they can fight for a lead of that Northern Division, which would be a really crazy story if Washington State made it. They've been kind of sneaky good, especially with all that's happened with their anti-vaxxer coach and everything getting fired in the middle of the season. Utah has already beat Arizona State, so unless they lose another couple games, they're pretty safe in, uh, in the South Division. So that's it for the conference breakdown. Let's see what we got next. So I'm recording this Monday night. The college football playoff rankings don't come out until 
Tuesday night, and this one this week is a little bit later than normal because ESPN has this basketball doubleheader. Um, so I don't believe the rankings are coming out until 9 Eastern. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but it's sometime late Tuesday night. So we'll touch on that probably quickly on the episode with Jacob on Tuesday. Now we will hit on our segments. So, yeah, some interesting progressions with the uh, hot seat of the week presented by Lee Corso. Of course, tier one, the seat is actively hot. I've got Justin Fuente right up here. Uh, the VT lost to Boston College 17-3 to on Friday. At the beginning of the season, this is a game I would have expected Virginia Tech to lose, but they were actually a, fi- a three-point favorite going into this game. Boston College has been really bad this year, all sorts of injury issues. Their record decreases to four and five. Their last three games of the year are Duke, Miami, and Virginia. I would expect them to only be favored in that Duke matchup. So it's going to be unlikely that the Hokies make it to a bowl game. And I would say, as as assuming they do not make it, then it's probable that Fuente gets canned after the Virginia matchup. Going to be really hard to win two out of the next three, but they have to if he has any chance at staying. But he's at the top of the list. So I had, when I was typing up my uh, outline and all my notes for the pod, yesterday I put Scott Frost very next. Nebraska's on a four-game skid. They are now three and seven on the year. All seven, it's it's complicated because this is like year four, but all four, or sorry, all seven of their losses are by a single-digit margin. Four of those are to current top 10 teams. So not even like a top 10 team in September that now sucks. Like they're all, all the teams are currently in the top 10 that they've had single-digit losses to. They just announced today, though, Nebraska's athletic director came out and said that Scott Frost will be back in 22, and they are going to renegotiate his contract, which I have not seen the details on, but we'll touch on that in the next episode or two once I get a chance to look a little bit more into it. So best case scenario, he's probably going to take a you know pay decrease like Jim Harbaugh did and then be able to actually win some of these super close games next year. It's worked out pretty well for Harbaugh. I mean, I don't, I'm not a big fan of him, but I've had to tip my hat on him kind of swallowing his pride and just betting on himself and essentially, you know, agreeing to take less money and opt into a very favorable buyout uh, deal for the university and Michigan's done really well this year. So that's kind of best case scenario for Scott Frost. <laughs> Worst case scenario is it's just like Clay Helton situation where, you know, we talked about this a lot earlier in the season. Anytime the university or athletic director comes out and announces that your coach isn't getting fired that's never a good sign so you know best case scenario it's a Jim Harbaugh situation they can actually win some of these close games next year worst case scenario we're talking about him week one next season and uh, he gets canned you know maybe the first first coach to, to be let go in 2022 so tier two, the seat is uh, not super hot, but either heating up or cooling down. 
debut of Dan Mullen. Uh, I probably could have put him on here a couple weeks ago when they got beat by LSU, but just given the fact that they made the SEC championship game last year and were like a touchdown away from going to the college football playoff, I just didn't feel like it was, you know, that fired big of a fire drill in Gainesville. However, this loss to South Carolina is really, 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 really bad. And, I mean, it was, like I said, the most shocking outcome of the day. Still would have been if Florida had just lost by a field goal, but they got absolutely, absolutely wrecked in uh, Columbia there. Like I said, Mullen let their defensive coordinator and offensive line coach go. He uh, He's lucky that he didn't have a bad season last year or else this could have been the nail in the coffin. But like I said, I think the success that Florida had last year is helping him buy some time. He's come out recently and just said a bunch of stupid shit in press conferences. Like, we all know he's pretty just kind of a weird guy. I mean, he's, you know, a good X's and O's coach, but recruiting's always been so-so, especially at Florida. He got some great guys at State, obviously, but... Um, they have been missing out on some big key players. There's one target that they were going really hard after, like the number one country player in the country, big D lineman that just committed to A&M over Florida the past couple days. And Mullen came out in a press conference after, I think it was last Saturday, uh, so like a week and a half ago, and basically just acted like he didn't have time to recruit and just acted like it was a seasonal, like optional thing, which, you know, he was probably just misspoke or whatever. But I mean, you just you just can't say that, especially when the fan base is kind of breathing down your neck and especially when you're missing out and letting a lot of big players from your own state go to Texas, Alabama, Georgia, etc. So He's uh he's kind of always just been you know, a bit of a loose cannon behind the mic and everything and you know when you're winning you can be you know kind of spin that into a funny guy thing but when you're losing you really get the microscope put over you and uh, you know he he should just probably <laughs> watch what he says but apparently his press conference after the South Carolina game was uh, was better and I think he kind of kind of accepted the responsibility himself. So the interesting thing with Mullen is that his contract is set up so that the buyout is the same today as it is next year as it is the next year. So it's a $12 million buyout, which is big, but we've seen bigger, especially in the SEC. Um, and $6 million of that is due you know, basically immediately, and then $6 million of it is paid $1 mil a year for the next six years after he gets let go, if he gets let go. Um, this, you know, usually with a coach's, uh, contract buyout situation, it'll decrease as you get further into the lifespan of your contract, which is sometimes incentive for universities to be a little bit more patient, you know, not pay the huge number just to pay someone to leave. Cause then obviously you have to sometimes pay your next coach's buyout and their salary and it gets expensive quick. Um, but since it's not getting any cheaper anytime soon, it's going to be really interesting. You know, maybe if Florida, I mean, okay. So right now they're four and five. Their next three games are Samford, Mizzou, and Florida state. All three games they should absolutely win. No question about it right now. I would not bet on them to win all three games. It feels like they're just, you know, the type of team that's going to slip up to, Mizzou or FSU, even though they're not worth anything either. Um, but if they win all three of those, best case scenario, they go seven and five on the year, which 
I think Florida fans could have lived with a step back from last year because they lost so much. But 7-5 and five is not the type of setback they were expecting. They were still thinking 9 or 10 win season, you know, while, while being competitive in the big games and whatnot. So this could go really bad. If they lose one of these next three, I mean, it's not impossible that they just they just say, screw it, we're letting him go now because what if he sucks for the next two years as well? Then you're still paying the same amount of money. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I haven't even begun to think about who would be a candidate for them, especially with the USC and, uh, and LSU jobs open and, you know, possibly Virginia Tech open, who knows about Miami still, but it's just, it's, things have gotten very weird in Gainesville and, uh, Florida needs to win the next three games just, you know, and like, no one's going to be happy about that, but like, you know, best case scenario, you end the season on a very neutral note, winning these last three games, including one over your rival. Worst case scenario, it could get really bad for Mullen. So we'll see. But this whole situation with the buyout being same today as it would be in November 2023 makes you makes you wonder just how impatient they're going to be with them. So I think he'll stay this year and get through it. But I mean, my God, I didn't think South Carolina would be beating them by more than three touchdowns either. So who knows? Lastly, Manny Diaz at Miami. He's kind of cooling, cooling off the hot seat a little bit. They've had a two straight wins against top 20 teams. So credit to the Canes on that. Uh, they are five and four now. So, of course, their record increasing from three and four. It's been a disappointing season no matter what, but they have some you know, interesting winnable games coming up against Florida State, Virginia Tech, and Duke. So if they finish the season eight and four, considering how bad it was, I think Diaz would stick around. And, uh, you know, I mean, if they won the next three, they would they would finish out the season on a five-game winning streak. So even though it wasn't what the Canes were hoping with, you know, ACC and even Dark Horse playoff uh, aspirations, they they could still. It's not too late for Diaz to to get things get things a little more settled down there. But he's still got some work to do. He really doesn't need to lo- lose any of these next three games. Um, next segment: Who's not back of the week? Presented by Texas for the fourth week of the row. It it in a row. It is your Texas Longhorns. After starting four and one, they have now lost four games in a row to become four and five. Things are really bad there for Sark and company. It's been an awful October into November for them. Uh, also, Nebraska just had to put them on since they're also on a four-game skid, dropping their record to three and seven. We've already talked all about them. The tweet of the week. Um, okay, I should have mentioned this in the Dan Mullen section, but it is kind of a kind of an extension on that so Brett McMurphy uh, tweeted out these are the teams with the worst the power five teams with the worst record against other power five opponents in the last 10 games that they've played so we have two teams that are 0 and 10 unsurprisingly that is Vandy and Kansas we have one team that is 1 and 9 that is Arizona and then we have six teams that are 2 and 8 uh, surprisingly, Indiana made this list, but they they kind of tailed off the end of last year, if you remember, and then this year has been really, really bad for the Hoosiers. But in addition to Indiana, a bunch of teams that isn't surprising, 
with Syracuse, Duke, Nebraska, South Carolina, all at 2-8, and eight, as well as the Florida Gators. <laughs> with this loss to South Carolina, Florida joins this group at 2-8 and eight against Power 5 opponents over the last 10 times that they've played a Power 5 opponent. And uh, that, I mean, that alone feels like it should be enough said about Mullen because that is just god-awful. And, uh, you know, to think that Florida almost beat Alabama and now they're, they're here, I mean, it makes everything confusing. Makes me feel uh, not great about Bama either. <laughs> but just, just seeing this stat was truly mind-boggling that Florida is, you know, for as good as they were last year, because I guess they lost their last two games last year to Alabama-Oklahoma. So those games are included on this little tally. And then they have just gotten absolutely wrecked this season by uh, Power 5 opponents and, you know, in some cases, bad Power 5 opponents. So the helmet sticker of the week goes to Tennessee's offense, but especially Hinden Hooker. Uh, They had just an incredibly efficient performance against Kentucky. The time of possession and amount of plays run in this game was a truly staggering margin with Kentucky having the ball for about 46 minutes out of the 60 total, Tennessee only having the ball for 14 out of 60 minutes, yet still winning this ball game 48 to 45. Hinden Hooker was 15 of 20, so completing 75% of his passes for 316 yards and four touchdowns. This is the explosive offense that we were talking about early in the season as a best-case scenario for Tennessee. I didn't think that it would be this good, quite frankly, but uh, they, f- they clearly have found the answer in Hooker, and it's, it's like night and day for Milton. I mean, Tennessee probably would have lost two or three more games if Milton had started the whole year, but Hooker with a great performance on the road in a you know pretty hostile stadium there at Kroger Field and... That's a good Kentucky defense, so they didn't they didn't have the, the ball for long, but when they did, my God, they uh, you know nearly scored a touchdown every other minute. So Pitt uh, got there for us on the best bet of the week. We had them minus twenty one against Duke, and they won by I believe twenty five. So a little close, but we got there. That puts us at seven seven and four on the season, which means that we guarantee not to have a losing record in the regular season. So. Cheers to us on that, guys. I hope people have made a little bit of money off of this. Uh, if we win one more the, for the rest of the season over the next three weeks, then we'll guarantee a profitable uh, excursion, which is obviously the goal. Uh, still working on it for next episode. I've got a couple in mind, but if I decide what it is before me and Jacob get on and record on Wednesday night, then I'll just go ahead and tweet that out. So hopefully we can get a good number. Game day grub. We had a delicious low country boil with some uh, some people experiencing that for the first time. A lot of got people out here from California or Colorado or Texas that have never had a low country boil. So it was uh, just as fun seeing them consume it for the first time as it was eating it myself. Thanks a lot to Maya for the help cooking all of that stuff. And this upcoming week, we've got a Friendsgiving we're going to on Saturday, and Maya can make a bomb mac and cheese. So I'm going to probably let her take over the the recipe segment and tweet out her mac and cheese recipe um, sometime this upcoming week. So maybe you guys can try that out this weekend or keep it for Thanksgiving if you have to bring a dish to a party or anything. So 
That's all I got for now. We'll be back on Wednesday night, out ready Thursday morning with Jacob for our best bets. Let's win some money, people. We can do this. Three weeks left in the season. It has really been flying by with how crazy my October was. Like It doesn't feel like it's already November 8th when I'm recording this. But uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for all the feedback, as always. And we'll see you in a couple days. Bye-bye.